just preach through the Bible, and right now we're on Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 27. We, I'm going to entitle this message, um, The Kingdom is a Really Messy Party. All right? In fact, pray with me here as, uh, before I even get into the text. Father, let your word come alive. Let it have authority that doesn't come from a human being. And use it to set us free to be your radical kingdom people in every dimension of the kingdom. Uh, just set us free, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I thank the, uh, the prayer team that prays for the sermon as it's going forth. And that you're all free to join them. Just pray that it has all the authority and truth that God wants it to have. We've seen that, that um, uh, the kingdom that Jesus is unleashing into this world is a radical kingdom. Uh, he gives us Magna Carta in chapter 4 and basically says there that this kingdom is so different from the way religious people normally think about things that it's going to tend to be the case that those who are on the inside of the religious establishment aren't going to get it. But those who are on the outside of the religious establishment, those who are marginalized, those who are, tend to be oppressed, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're going to get it. It's going to be a a really upside-down, weird-looking kind of a kingdom. And we've seen Jesus begin to live that out as he's been going through the, his ministry. And so Sandra and Annie preached about the leper uh, who were considered unclean in the first century and how he was healed, and the paralytic, how he was, had his sins forgiven and how he was healed. And that brings us up to this passage that we're looking at here this morning where we'll see uh, in a real intensified way just how much the kingdom is directed towards the outsiders. So here's what it says in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Uh, this is pause for a moment on these two verses before we go forward. Why does Luke mention the occupation of Levi? And by the way, Levi is the same as Matthew, uh, the disciple of Jesus who wrote uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It wasn't uncommon at all in those days for people to have two different names. But why does Luke mention the occupation of Levi? And the answer is that that occupation was really significant. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, Israel at this time and actually for the several centuries preceding this time, had been under Roman occupation. They'd been taken over by the Romans, and uh, started with the Greeks, and then it would transition to the Romans. And uh, uh, Israel was a satellite of the Roman Empire. So there's Roman guards all around. They are despised by the Jewish people. Uh, I wouldn't be going too far if I would depict the attitude of most Jews towards the Romans who were occupying their land as being something similar to uh, maybe our view of terrorists. These are terrorists who are oppressing us and they are occupying our land. There, there's just a hostility there. Tax collectors worked for the terrorists. They were employed by the Roman government and their job was to collect taxes from the Jewish people to support the Roman government there in the Palestinian area. So tax collectors weren't very popular among first century Jews. On top of that, we know from historical records that uh, they had a reputation, tax collectors had a reputation for charging more than, than the Roman government actually asked, and they had the authority to do that. And so they would overtax their own people and keep the extra for themselves. The Roman government didn't pay very much, but some of the tax collectors got rather wealthy doing this. They ripped off their own people, and they did it for the Roman government. So they were especially unpopular. 
Matthew would be extremely unpopular because he seems to be one of the ones who got wealthy ripping off his own people. We'll see here in a little bit how he hosts this huge banquet with a lot of people. That tells us that he had a house large enough to accommodate a lot of people, which was very rare for Jews in the first century. It tells us he had enough money uh, to hold a banquet with uh, food and wine. Uh, that was rare in the first century. So this guy's got some bucks. And so far as we can tell, he got those bucks by ripping off people. Which makes it just incredible that Jesus would invite him to be one of his disciples. Just mind-boggling. He is scraping the bottom of the social barrel, folks, as he invites Matthew to be one of his followers. Usually rabbis at this time, they would build sort of an esteem for themselves by being very selective on who their disciples were. They had kind of like little schools that, of, of disciples, and they'd be very selective and, and choosy on who got to follow them. But Jesus goes out, and he sees this Matthew, the tax collector, and he invites him to follow Jesus. It's just mind-boggling. Second thing I want to just note about this passage is how simple it is. Jesus says, want to follow me? Matthew says, yep. And there starts the kingdom. Matthew begins his kingdom journey with a simple surrender to Jesus, leaving his tax booth and following Jesus. It's it is that simple. Matthew enters the kingdom because the kingdom is all about following Jesus, Matthew enters the kingdom at that moment. Now, Jesus didn't know a thing about Matthew. So far as we can tell from the text, this was their first encounter. Jesus doesn't know what brand of Judaism this guy ascribes to, if he ascribes to any brand of Judaism. Jesus, for all Jesus knows, the guy could be an atheist. Uh, he doesn't know anything about his life, doesn't know whether he's rich or poor, gay or straight, married or single, doesn't know a thing about Matthew, and he doesn't ask any questions. He just says, follow me. And Matthew says, yes. And all that is to say this. Folks, when we, are, when we are blessed with the privilege of sharing Christ with people, keep it simple. It's just a matter of saying, do you want to follow Jesus? Now, as you follow Jesus, undoubtedly there's uh, uh, thousands, maybe millions of issues that get confronted. Your beliefs get changed. Your character gets formed. A lot, you're a different person over time as you follow Jesus. But see, that change happens because you're following Jesus. It doesn't happen as the precondition for following Jesus. So when we present the gospel, make sure that you don't put unnecessary hoops in front of people that they have to jump through in order to join the kingdom. It really doesn't matter how old the earth, they think the earth is. It doesn't matter what their particular view of the Bible is. There's a lot of things that we can talk about once they're following Jesus, but just keep it simple if you want to follow Jesus. I was uh, this last week in a, in a coffee shop and uh, having a discussion with a wonderful guy who was just um, sharing with me that there's some things in his life that just aren't going very well. And... Um, uh, that's really kind of a fortunate thing because it's caused him to really take a look at his life. And I was able to just in a very simple way uh, lay out what I think God's doing in this world, how God created the world for us to have relationship with him and how we're estranged from God. There's this separation, which is why we all feel kind of off and incomplete and unfulfilled. But Jesus came to restore this relationship with God. And now for all who will surrender their life to him and follow him, he comes and lives inside of us. And there's this quiet revolution going on throughout the world of people who have got Jesus living inside of them. Do you want to join? It's really that simple. And he had some questions like, oh, how do you do that? Maybe he was looking for the fine print. That sounds too simple. And, and I was able just to say in various ways, no, there's no fine print. It really is this simple. Do you want to follow Jesus? Turn from your self-centered way of living to a Christ-centered way of living. That, by the way, folks, is what the Bible means by repentance. 
It's not a matter of having a list of particular sins that you feel remorse for. You might get that as you're walking with Jesus, but the fundamental repentance that enters you into the kingdom is just a willingness to turn from a self-centered way of living to a Christ-centered way of living. So I said, do you want to follow Jesus? And he said, yeah. And so right there in the coffee shop, I was able to lead him in a one-minute prayer, and that begins the kingdom in this man's life. Praise God. I tell you, if he continues with this, and I'm sure he will, he'll be a different man a year and five years from now. But that happens because he's walking with Jesus, following Jesus. It doesn't happen as a precondition for his following Jesus. So keep it simple. Keep it simple. It's about your heart relationship with Christ. Okay, let's move on. Verse 29, it says, Then Levi held a great banquet. First thing Levi does for Jesus is he throws a party has a grain banquet, which is a first century word for party. And he does it at his house, the house he got from ripping off people. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them, which is a form of fellowship in the first century. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now I'm sure they asked this question sometime afterwards because a Pharisee wouldn't be caught dead at a party where there's tax collectors and other kind of sinners and prostitutes and, and whatnot. But they're interrogating Jesus and his disciples, so Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And by the way, we're all sick, and we all need a doctor. And the sickest people on the planet who are those who think that they're healthy and don't need a doctor. And he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to turn. Turn to following me. And by the way, you're all sinners. Uh, you get that reading the whole context of the Gospels. Now, there's two things I want to say about this passage. The first thing is this. It is significant that the first thing Matthew does as a disciple of Jesus Christ is throw a party. And what that tells us is that Jesus was a partier. Jesus was a partier. And he wasn't particularly choosy about who he partied with. In fact, it seems to be the case that anyone who wanted to party, Jesus was there to party with them. He was a partier. We get the stiff view of Jesus. Oh, the stiff view. Maybe it's because we've watched too many movies about Jesus. Where all these movies until recently, they, you know, Jesus is walking around looking like a stoned white guy who never smiles. And um, he's got that glazed look, and he's, he's so serious all the time. Way too serious. And see, if that's your image of Jesus, and you think it's your call to imitate Jesus, then you're going to be stiff and serious. And that's why you get so many Christians seem so knotted up, don't they? Uh, it, it, just, they remind me of that blonde gal on The Office. Any of you watch The Office? <laughs> funniest show on TV. I reckon, funniest show on TV. And there's that white, uh, that, that, the blonde gal who is uh, uh, the Christian in the group, and, and she's just always knotted up because she can never join in the fun. And some people would say, oh, that's the liberal media caricaturing us. And I'd respond by saying, I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> I... I at least a lot of people are like that. But see, if, if your view of Jesus is, that, is this stiff, knotted-up guy, then you're going to be a stiff, knotted-up kind of person. But the Jesus you find in the gospel isn't like that. The first miracle Jesus does is at a wedding. And Jewish weddings were weddings, man. They got down. They lasted three days. And the whole strand runs out of wine probably around the second day, and it's kind of embarrassed. So Jesus, his first miracle is changing water into wine for these people who have already been drinking for two days. That's a little odd, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus was a partier. And a lot of his parables, he, he, parties are at the center of a lot of his parables. He went to a lot of banquets, a lot of get-togethers, a lot of parties. It's all over the place in the Gospels. 
And by the way, when he does that, he's not taking a break from his ministry. That's part of his ministry. That's, what, that's part of what he was called to do. He depicts heaven as a giant party. The kingdom of God is like a giant party. And remember, his job and our job is to live in such a way that God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. So part of our mission is to let the party in heaven come down to earth. We are called to imitate Jesus and be partiers. We're supposed to party. All right. Well, a lot of you haven't heard that from a preacher before, have you? Now, look, I'm not talking about what a lot of people mean by partying. I'm not talking about going out and getting drunk and having immoral sex or anything like that. But see, we don't need to do that to have fun because we've got a billion other reasons to party, a lot of reasons to have fun. And we're supposed to be party animals. It's godly to party. It's Christ-like to party. To party with different kinds of people and, and they know how to enjoy and kick back and laugh with all sorts of dis different kinds of people. It's godly. In fact, if you're not getting out once in a while and having a good time, you're disobeying God. You are sinning. <laughs> you need to repent of your boredom and get out and rip off the town once in a while. We're supposed to enjoy life. That's part of God's creational design. Paul says this in 1 Timothy, that we are to put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything, everyone say it, for our enjoyment. Part of God's creational design is for us to enjoy living, and we're supposed to do it. God not only permits us to have a good time, he commands us to have a good time. I also say this, you're wired such that you need to have a good time. We don't do well if we perseverate on problems 24-7. We go nuts if we don't take breaks once in a while. We need to party. It puts a perspective on things we're otherwise not going to get. I was down in Costa Rica with my wife and some friends. We haven't been a nice vacation. And for the first couple of days, uh, my wife, Shelly, was just not able to really enter into it. She had something on her mind with her family, and, and it was kind of depressing her. And, and so she was just not really having a good time for the first couple of days. And then I think it was the third or fourth day, she decided to do something I've never seen her do on a vacation before, and that is boogie board. Uh, yeah, boogie boards where you get these boards and you kind of surf it. You're laying on the body. You got to jump up and catch a wave and, and things of that sort. And uh, the water was, was bathtub warm, which is why she was able to do this. And so she gets out and, and the first wave she jumped. Now, see, I've been doing this for six years. And I'm lucky if I get one out of ten waves. And even when I catch a good wave, I, you know, will stop 20 yards before I get to the shore. Her first wave, she catches it dead on, and she rides it all the way into the, the, the shore, screaming all the way. It was just... And then Julie, who's part of our small group, she joins her, and these two women, grown women, are acting like adolescent girls, screaming and laughing and having the time of their life, catching wave after wave after wave. It was just a joy to watch. It was also kind of irritating, because I can never do it that well. At one point, I, I got a little, I was really going to go out there and, and get this thing down, so I went out with my boogie board. Now, the problem is that I had uh, bought a new set of trunks that I hadn't tried on before I went on vacation, and they're a little loose. <laughs> and some of you who boogie board know what, what happened. So I, a great way was coming in, and so you got to jump up and catch it, right? You know, right. So I jump up with my loose shorts and caught this wave dead on, and my trunks start going down, 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 down. <laughs> And if you think I'm going to stop just for that reason after catching a wave, you're wrong. I was mooning the heavenly angels all the way into the shore. And, there's, and this one lady on the beach saw it. 
and I made her vacation. She was laughing so hard. It was... All right, well, but see, after that episode, Shelly was able, it just changed, it just changed her perspective on things, and she was able to enter into the vacation and, and, and have a good time. You need to party. You, it, we're wired that way. So my prophetic word for Woodland Hills Church this morning is this, thus says the Lord, thou shalt party. <laughs> thou shalt party. Amen. Married couples, thus says the Lord, thou shalt party. You need to get out of the house once in a while and, and have a good time. I know you got issues probably. You, you fight over different things. You know, after 20 years of being married, you still haven't quite got the sex thing down. Okay, I got that. You got financial problems. You got kid problems. A lot of problems. You got to get out and have a good time. The best thing you can do to address those problems is to put those problems on hold for a little bit and go out dancing and go out with some friends and go catch a good movie or do something. And if you can't agree upon what is a good time, take turns and learn how to get into each other's good times. But you got to party. You got to go out for it. Small groups. Thus says the Lord, thou shalt party. Small groups, you got to get out and have a good time once in a while. Yeah, you need to read the Bible and study the Bible together. That's good. And you need to discuss tough issues. That's good. You need to spend time worshiping God. That's good. Uh, you need to go out and serve the community in different ways. That's all part of being a small group, but also part of it being a small group. A very important part of being a small group is that you know how to pate. You know how to get down. You know how to go out and dance and, and have a good time. The small group that parties together is a small group that stays together. Otherwise, you just get bored with each other and give up on a thing. Get out and party. Have a good time. Single people, thou shalt pate, says the Lord. Single people, you need to get out there. Get out of the house and do new things. Meet new people. Mix it up a little bit. Try different stuff. You know, keep life. Don't go into this humdrum autopilot kind of a thing. Keep it alive. Keep it vibrant. Keep it passionate. A couple years ago, I mentioned to Dan, he needs to get out a little more. Dan's the guy who runs the PowerPoint. Great guy. I love this guy, and I get to pick on him all the time. And because uh, he jokes at me whenever he gets a chance, so I'm getting even here. But, you know, I, I, I just mentioned that. And, and this year, the guy took up dancing lessons. What a great thing. And now the guy's out there tangoing. You know, he, he's doing the tango with different people. That's great. That's what I'm talking about. Dan, you nail it. 49-year-old, very available bachelor, by the way. And... Uh, <laughs> And if you like to tango, I'm just saying, okay. Dan, you owe me. If anything happens out of this, I'll get a kickback. <laughs> and Woodland Hills Church, we need to learn how to pate, how to have a good time. I loved our salsa dance we did a lot of a year ago. Man, that was great. Let's have another one. And when we come together, man, you know what? If there's a song that's happening like there was today, feel free to dance. That's an okay thing to do. We were mixing it up up here, weren't we? Man, we were going down. I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm all sweaty. But that's what, the kingdom of God is a party. It's godly to party. It's necessary to party and have a good time. Get out and mix it up with all different kinds of people. Now, you may be here thinking this, because I've thought this. How can you take a break and party when the world is such a dark and ugly and painful place? How can you spend money partying when there's poverty all over the place and kids are going hungry? How can you party when there's AIDS ravishing Africa and other parts of the world, when there's wars that are going on, where there's vicious hatred that are ripping people limb to limb? How do you party? If you're godly, shouldn't you spend every dime on the kingdom effort and, 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 and uh, you know, enter into the suffering of the world? In fact, I could personalize it here. How can I justify going to Costa Rica which isn't the most inexpensive vacation you could possibly take. 
How do you justify doing that when there's starving kids in the world? How many kids could you have fed with that money going to Costa Rica? It's a, it's a legitimate question. And if you follow it through a little further, you come to this. How can you take any vacation in a world where there's starving kids? In fact, how can you justify driving the nice car that you drive or driving any car when there's a world of starving kids, let alone having a couple cars? How can you justify living in the house that you live in if you live in a house or maybe the apartment that you live in if you live in an apartment? How do you justify that when there's a, you know, a third of the people on the planet don't have any kind of a house? They live in little shanties. How do you justify that? How do you justify uh, buying new clothes when there's people on the planet who don't have any clothes? How do you justify anything, anything more than macaroni and cheese when there's people who don't even have macaroni and cheese to eat? How do you justify that? That mindset is, it reflects a good heart. Uh, and, and the Lord knows maybe most Americans need to have more of that question in their life. Is this really, are you being responsible with, with the resources that God's given you? That, that, that those are good questions and it reflects a good heart. I, I, I have gotten, I got into this thing a couple of years ago, about 10, 11 years ago now. First time I went to Haiti, uh, I knew about poverty. You know, I know the statistics, but I never really smelled it firsthand like I did in Haiti, and it impacted me powerfully. And when I came back, every dollar bill had a face of a starving Haitian on it, a little kid that I saw. And, I, and so it seemed like every dollar bill I had to ask the question, am I going to feed the kid or am I going to just spend it on what I want? Uh, and of course, the starving kid always wins. My wife wanted to replace our curtains, which were terribly sh sh shoddy, and uh, I was having a lot of trouble with that. How can we buy new curtains when there's kids that are starving? We're, we're, we're killing the kids with our curtains. Of course, we're killing the kids when we go to a movie. We don't need to go to a movie. If we go to a movie, we're killing the kids when we buy popcorn. We're killing the kids when we buy new clothes. And we're killing the kids when we give presents to our own kids when they don't even have food. How do you justify that? And it caused tremendous problems in my marriage. I don't mind telling you. And I know that there's more than a few people at Woodland Hills Church who have also had those issues. In fact, I know one couple that split up over this kind of issue. I, and see, as long as you've got that haunting thought in your head, you can never relax and party. So I want to share here what the Lord taught me, a couple of things. One is this, Jesus took time to party, and I'm not holier than Jesus. And so if my job is to imitate Jesus, and yet my theology says I should never, it's, it's, it's wrong to ever party or to do anything more than necessary, there must be something wrong with my theology. Second point. God had to remind me that he takes responsibility for the world as a whole. If I try to play God, it destroys me. Because there's always more you could give up, and there's always more needs in the world that, that, are, are, that, 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 uh, uh, that could be met. And really, until you're ending up on the corner of a street in a cardboard box, you're going to have something that somebody else doesn't have, so you're going to have a reason to feel guilty. And that guilt will lead to cynicism, and it will destroy you. Some of the most cynical people on the planet are those who are idealistic and they have great hearts. But they, they, they take on too much and they are crushed under the weight. And the, that guilt and cynicism and misery isn't making the world a fairer place. It's just destroying you. Which leads to my third point. God had to show me that he will give me, if I'm obedient, he'll give me a small slice of the world to be responsible for and I'm not guilty, I'm not to feel guilty for the rest. I do what I'm told and I leave the rest for God. So the Lord basically told me, uh, you can't handle taking on all the kids of, of, of Haiti, let alone all the kids in the world. You're not their savior. But if you're open to it, I will give you 
maybe six kids that you can partner with others to help, uh, to help take care of. You can maybe handle six. But if you take on more than I call you to, it's going to destroy you. And so I've gotten very good at, at, at uh, just sacrificially living as God calls me to sacrificially live and then putting the rest of the world on his shoulders. The world is a dark and ugly and painful, sometimes nightmarish place. And I can't shoulder that. I can't live in guilt over the fact that my life isn't as miserable as some. So I put it on God's shoulders because God's shoulders are big shoulders. Mine aren't. Do what you're told and put the rest on God. The fourth thing is enjoying the blessings of God manifests the kingdom more than not enjoying God's blessings. God's creational design isn't for misery. It's for abundance. And so you are reflecting more of the kingdom by having the ability to enter into parties than if, you're, than if you're not doing it. And you're not helping the world by trying to get down to the lowest common denominator to ease your guilty conscience, which leads to my fifth point. God's economic plan is to bless you in order to bless others. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, and enjoying what we're supposed to enjoy, you will abound in every good work. Now listen up on this. God's economic plan isn't a zero-sum game where every slice of the pie that you have is cheating somebody else out of a slice of the pie. It's not a zero-sum game. It's an abundance game. He wants to give you more than you need so you now can partner with him on meeting the needs of others. So we're to accept God's blessings and enjoy God's blessings, give sacrificially as the Lord leads us, and not feel guilty about the rest. You may find that as you sacrificially give, which means giving to the point where it pinches you. Since God is revealed in Jesus Christ, usually what he calls us to do is to imitate that, and it hurts a little bit. But as you do that, you may find, it's not magic, but it is a kingdom principle, that the more you give, the more he gives you to give. And the more, the more you bless, the more he blesses you so you can bless people more. And you get into that kingdom economic plan. So my wife and I give, as we feel God's calling us, a, a good percentage of our income, we give it away to the church and to other ministries. But having done that, I'm going to Costa Rica. And I know it's not fair. A good percentage of the world can't go to Costa Rica, and I can't make the world a fair place, but I feel I'm, 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 I'm living as God calls me to live. Do your best, obey God, give sacrificially, and then ease your conscience. It's also why, by the way, you're never going to find me, I hope, ever judging somebody for, for the way they live. Because uh, I'm not their God. They don't answer to me, and I don't have a clue about what's going on in their life. Some of the people who sacrifice a lot because they feel God calls them to to enter into the poor or whatever, sometimes that cynicism that can begin to grab hold of them can make them judgmental towards people who have nice houses and nice cars and wear nice clothes. But see, God, I, I'm not going to judge somebody for the house they live in or even if they have a private jet because I'm not their God. And for all I know, they're smack dab in the middle of God's will. My job is to, with a genuine heart, listen to what God's calling me and my family to do. And to do that, and then put the rest on God's shoulders and pate. Which leads to my second point I want to bring out of this passage. Why couldn't the Pharisees enjoy this party? Jesus obviously could. The Pharisees couldn't. Why is that? And this question gets us to the heart of the kingdom. It gets us to the heart of the difference between the kingdom of God on the one hand and religion on the other. And the basic answer is this. Jesus is okay with messes but the Pharisees are not. Look at this party from a Pharisee's perspective. It is, to say the least, scandalous. 
It is wild. It is as unreligious and unchurchy as anything can possibly be. Here's Matthew, the wealthy tax collector, using his, his wealth that he got from ripping off other people uh, to host this big party and to, uh, to bring out food and wine. Uh, it, it's all a matter of, of, of the money that he got by working for the Roman government, ripping off other people. He invites all of his friends. Now, tax collectors don't have many friends in the first century. The only friends they have are other tax collectors, which is why the passage says that there's a great company of tax collectors that are at this party. Jesus invites his friends, and we know from the Gospels that the main ones who followed him were the tax collectors and the prostitutes and other kinds of sinners. So you've got a party of uh, the, those that would be perceived by the Pharisees as being lowlifes. You've got a real motley crew here, and here's the all-holy Jesus in the middle of it. You've got to get a picture of Jesus sharing a glass of wine with Ginger the prostitute who brought her three prostitute friends because they're looking for a free meal and some free wine. And here's Jesus kicking it back with these folks. And apparently, just enjoying himself, he wasn't pointing out their sin at that point because that would have brought a quick end to the party, I assure you. It's a messy situation. And if you're a Pharisee, that messiness is offensive and makes you very, very nervous. There's a ton of religious and ethical questions that a Pharisee would need to have resolved before you could ever relax enough to have a good time. For example, is it really ethical for Jesus to be benefiting from uh, the house and the food and the wine that was purchased with, with, with money from a scandalous way of making a living? Is that really ethical? Aren't you subtly condoning the practice of ripping off people by enjoying the benefits of that? That's a good ethical question. It's a little bit like the question that was circulating in the Twin Cities a couple years ago when that one guy won the big lottery and tithed to a church, gave a couple million dollars to a church, and some pastors were saying, we would never accept lottery money. That's, that, that's filthy money. And I'm saying, hey, it's all filthy. Go ahead and tithe here if you want. You know, so I'll take it. But, but it's a legitimate ethical question. And is it ethical for Jesus to be hanging out with these prostitutes and tax collectors and other low life, quote unquote? Uh, isn't he subtly condoning their lifestyle by doing that? And is it wise for the guy who's going to be trying to save the world to be undermining his reputation and ruining his credibility by hanging out with that? Because everybody knows that birds of a feather flock together. And, uh, and isn't Jesus actually harming society by participating in this ungodly party? Because from a Pharisee's perspective, the problem with the world are people like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those kind of sinners. And we, the righteous, who have superior wisdom and, and, and uh, uh, righteousness, uh, we're called to fix the world. And, and the way to fix the world is by uh, outlawing people like this. So we need to take a str strong stand, strong public stand against people like this who are undermining the moral fabric of society. And we need to seek to pass laws against people like this who are undermining the, the moral fabric of society. And here Jesus is. He's supposed to be one of the fixers of the world, but he's hanging loose with the breakers of the world. And it's just not working. It's a messy situation. And so for the Pharisee, that mess has to be cleaned up before you can relax and have a good time, which is why you will never find a Pharisee sharing a glass of wine with a prostitute. You see, the Pharisees are looking at this party like they looked at everything. They're looking at it through the lens of their conviction that they, that they can and must fix the world with their superior wisdom and righteousness. They get life from believing that they have superior wisdom and righteousness to fix people and to fix the world, which is why they could never participate in a party like this. But Jesus did. And the question I want to ask is, why is it that, that, on the whole, Christians today look more like 
the Pharisee's stance than the Jesus stance. I really believe that the spirit of that we can and we must fix the world pharisaical mindset has to a certain degree infected Christianity. And it explains why Christians tend to have the same reputation as the Pharisees had in the first century. It explains why Christians aren't known for their, 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 their partying skills. It explains why many times people walk on eggshells around us when they hear that we're born-again Christians. Uh, and if you think they walk on eggshells when they hear you're a born-again Christian, try to imagine what they act like when they find out that you're a pastor of born-again Christians. Uh, I hate it. I hate it. I don't want to tell people I'm a pastor because they often like, oh, Invoke the rules, you know, no swearing, must be no off-color jokes, must, and everyone's unnatural around it, and it's like, ah! Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why if someone asks me if I'm a Christian, I usually say, well, I'm not too comfortable with that word, but, but I, I do follow Jesus. Uh, because what the, the word Christian has become almost synonymous with Phariseeism, at least in the minds of some, and that's not what communicates what I'm about. Uh, and so I usually say, well, I'm not really comfortable with that word. It can mean a lot of different things, but I, but I do follow Jesus. And I'm convinced I've had a lot of conversations I wouldn't have had otherwise if I would have told them, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. <sighs> it explains why we're not known for our outrageous love and outrageous joy and outrageous grace. And I believe, to the core of my being, we need to recover what Jesus and his disciples had that allowed them to go to a party like this and enjoy themselves. In fact, we need to recover that perspective that not only allowed them, but they actually saw going to a party like this as part of their mission. And I'd sum up what we need to recover with three quick words. One is this. As kingdom people, we are to know that life is found in relationship with God, not in religious judgment. Getting our life from God, we don't any longer need to be getting life by how we compare and contrast with others or by how we think we can fix the world. And that frees us to accept and enjoy people as they are, which frees us to party with anybody. Secondly, as kingdom people, we're to know that we are as much sinners as anyone else. So we aren't in a position to fix anyone with our supposed superior wisdom and righteousness. And if we really internalize that truth, it frees us to accept and enjoy people as they are and to party with anyone. Now, if you know someone intimately and they've invited you in on their life and you've invited them on their life, God will use you sometimes to speak truth into their life that may change them. But when we try to fix strangers, we only end up making things worse. In fact, I would argue that most of the world's problems, certainly most of the world's conflict, most of the world's bloodshed has been caused by people thinking they had a superior wisdom and righteousness that could fix the world or fix the culture or fix other people. And think about this. If anyone was able to come up with the right solution with their own wisdom and their own righteousness, why is the world still broken? Why isn't it fixed yet? We've been at this for quite a while. And if anyone did have the righteousness and wisdom, superior righteousness and wisdom that empowered them to have the right solution to the world's problems, why would we need a Savior? The fact that God had to become a human being to rescue us from ourselves, doesn't that tell us that we're not capable of fixing ourselves? We're not capable of fixing the world on our own basis. Which leads to my third point. The only thing that can fix people and ultimately fix the world as God's unconditional love bringing about kingdom joy. 
It is the kingdom of God. The hope of the world is found in the kingdom. And knowing this frees us to accept people as they are and party with anyone. In fact, we do it not to take a break from the kingdom, but as an expression of the kingdom, inviting people in on the love and the joy of the kingdom. The best thing we can do to fix the world is to put our hope in God and enjoy life. To live in self-sacrificial love, replicating the love of Jesus Christ as we serve the world and to manifest the joy of the kingdom as we learn how to laugh and kick back and relax with all different kinds of people. And out of the relationships that are created there, doors are opened up for people to come into the truth of who Jesus is and the kingdom. Self-sacrificial love, partying joy, that is the kingdom of God. Close your eyes. Two questions I want to leave us with here. I want to just give a moment for the Holy Spirit to work in our life and seal this message in our heart. And I know that this message is probably different than what a lot of people are used to hearing, but it is so true. Question number one, Holy Spirit, tell us what we need to learn and take away from this message. Is it the case that the Holy Spirit reveal it to you? Do you need more fun in your life? Have you gotten into an autopilot rut where your life just isn't very fun? Is the Holy Spirit telling you you need to repent of your boredom, repent of your lack of passion, repent of your stiffness, repent of your funlessness? And listen to the Holy Spirit and ask him, how, in obedience to God, can you bring more fun into your life? How can you bring more fun into your marriage, into your small group, into your neighborhood? Fun is of God. He commands it. And if you find that you, in fact, have kind of fallen into that mediocre, joyless, religious stance, will you repent of it and ask the Holy Spirit to help you see how you can be a partier for Jesus Christ? Second question. Are you perhaps one of those that have been infected with the Pharisee's virus? Have you been infected with the I can and I must with my superior wisdom and uh, righteousness, I must fix people and fix the world? Are you one of those who because of that conviction, which maybe you're not even aware that you have, but you do know this, when you're around certain types of sinners, never the people who have your sin, but other types of sinners, you, have, you feel a compulsion to express your opinion about their lifestyle. You feel guilty if you don't tell them what you think. And see, that's a sign that you've been infected with the virus. And if you're there, just ask the Holy Spirit, just repent of it, repent of your judgmentalism, and ask the Holy Spirit to set you free. And to realize how arbitrary your socialized conditioning has been that causes you to put certain people in this group where you need to play the fix-it role in their life. And as I close in prayer, I want to say that the prayer team will be up here. In fact, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you want to pray uh, for any need whatsoever, I encourage you to come forward and spend some time in prayer. But I, Lord, I just thank you for being the partying, lovely, beautiful, radiant God that you are and for calling us to reflect that truth about you. I pray, Lord God, that we would be set free, that we would learn how to laugh and enjoy all different kinds of people. I pray, Lord God, we'd be freed from any checks we have in our spirit, uh, any of the Pharisee questions that keep us from manifesting your joy. And I pray, Lord God, as we go out of here, your self-sacrificial love and your parting joy would be manifested in our life, in our marriages, in our families, in our place of employment, in our neighborhoods, everywhere, Lord. 
Help us to party with Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go out and party. Build the kingdom. See you next week.